for work, I've kind of let everybody that I worked with back in the States know that if a, an opportunity came up that they wanted to work together and it was long enough that it made sense, if it's a week long job and it makes sense for me to pay my own flight, that'll happily come back and work together. And I'd love to do that. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Creative Truth. Today, I'm joined by my old uh, college buddy, Kyle Kroll. He's a filmmaker in, I uh, don't know if you're in L.A. or Bruges, Belgium, uh, but he, uh, he works for himself. He always has. He's an inspiration to me because, as everyone that listens knows, I, I went off on my own this year. Uh, but he's been, he, he just went right for it from the get-go. And uh, he's been uh, traveling the world and doing all sorts of cool stuff. So I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to gloss over anything or just, uh, you know, talk you up too much, you know. So uh, to, to open it up, could you uh, answer this question? How has where you're from shaped the creative professional you are today? Oh, man, starting off strong. Well, I'm from Liverpool, New York, upstate New York, uh, just down the road from where you're from. Um, how did it shape the way that I am professionally? I suppose uh, coming from that part of the country, you have to deal with the snow, you have to deal with the weather. There's a lot of uh, annoying factors that you have to deal with just from living there. And I think that has uh, allowed me be, to be more patient when it comes to uh, being elsewhere, whether it be Los Angeles or where I currently am in uh, Belgium, uh, to know that not everything is going to go smoothly and you have no control over that. So you uh, kind of have to roll with the punches a little bit. Um, and I gave, I butchered like what you do so bad, but how would you tell people what you, what you do? Uh, I'm a freelance cameraman and a cinematographer and uh, I work on various uh, projects, whether it be commercial work, documentary work, some television work, uh, whatever is available and whatever sounds like a cool project at the time, uh, I like to hop on and uh, do the camera work for. Uh, I am also, I do editing as well, but uh, I focused on camera work. Um, are you working on anything right now? Uh, nothing right now, but I have a project in the works for the Bahamas, which is a regular client that I've been working with for the past couple of years. It's a resort called Bahamar, and the uh, project coming up is a water park that they created. So it'd be shooting advertisements for that. All right. Now you said you do some editing for that kind of project. Do you work with a team? Uh, yeah. So that that project's changing a little bit because, um, well, the last time we worked with them was pre-COVID, and they were in a bit of a transitional period with the uh, agency that they hire. So um, their, their business hires an agency, that agency hires a production company that hires me. Um, so I'm pretty far down the road. But for something like that, we have communication with their editing team and um, that agency is on a retainer with the resort. So um, those are full-time employees that we communicate with, whether it be about file formats or which cameras we're using and which settings match and 
how we're shooting it. Um, but that's just more basic communication stuff. So we don't really have to do with the editing for that project. So you're not part of a production company. You're just a freelancer and, you're, and different. Freelancer. I uh, was part of a production company with a couple of friends of mine from Los Angeles, but um, just before COVID kind of in 2019, we had a bit of a split of which direction we wanted the company to go. So we, uh, I stepped away from the company so the other two partners could head in a different direction. Was there any sort of exclusivity that you couldn't work with other production companies when you were working with them? Nope, none at all. Um, it was a small but growing production company that we were kind of running and trying to maintain and find our own voice. Um, but it was well understood that we'd all be doing freelance jobs on the side, um, excluding the producer who uh, most of his job opportunities were uh, longer term things. So um, the only form of exclusivity I had is if I were to be offered a job that was four months or something like that, a four month travel job, that Good would job. have to be a conversation I would have with the team and really decide uh, what that would look like. But uh, that opportunity didn't really uh, come up too often. And a lot of the longer jobs we did were as a team. Um, when was the first time that you knew you wanted to be a cinematographer? Ooh, um, probably, probably my first or second year of college. Um, I started off college as a technical education major. So to wow. be yeah. Um, I didn't know that. I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I actually, I got to pat myself on the back. I planned it pretty well. I did all my general education courses in the first two years. So that kind of let me grow as a person and figure out what I wanted to do um, without wasting too many credits, basically. Um, but I think by the time I was a sophomore in college, I realized that tech ed wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. And it was going to be difficult to get a job in tech ed or in production. So why not do the thing that I'm more passionate about rather than um, settling for something that also won't be the easiest path? So I, I already know the answer to this, but what was the, what was the kind of the seed of uh, your interest with cameras? And The seed was uh, skateboarding and my brother. My brother was uh, always into broadcasting kind of stuff. So he always had a mini DV camera laying around and yeah, had uh, Sony Vegas installed on the computer. Um, and then, yeah, I was an avid skateboarder growing up. Uh, so I'd always take the camera out and we'd make stupid little skate videos uh, back in the day. And, you know, that's my background too. Um, and there's so many of us because you'll see you'll see a filmer or whatever and you'll like you'll see like, all right, he's got he's got like skate shoes on, but I don't see any scuffs. Does he walk a certain way? Does he talk? And then you're like, do you skate? He's like, yeah, I do know. It's like, well, there's so many of us that like, that's our first introduction to picking up a I've camera. Even, I've even found that out here, um, out here in Belgium. I've been kind of doing the, all the initial networking kind of starting from scratch. And um, I've already noticed several people out here have some sort of skateboarding background or history, or uh, like you said, you can see it from the style. Um, one of the people I just reached out to was just a, a friend of a friend. Uh, I didn't know anything about them. And I go to their Instagram page and they just posted a skateboarding ad that they worked on. And it's, uh, it seems to be the same out here. 
that there's like a crazy overlap between people doing professional camera work that isn't necessarily skateboarding related, but had uh, roots from uh, filming skating. I'm working on uh, two skateboarding projects professionally that I will, I'll tell you about one right now and then I'll tell you another one off air. But um, yeah, I love the idea of actually doing a skate, uh, starting a second podcast where I just talk to professionals who use the skateboard um, and basically how that shaped their career. Cause one thing that is, you know, the creativity, sure. But the, just kind of the pers perseverance and persistence of having to do the same trick over and over and again, I think that there's a lot of life lessons that people get out of that, but not to nerd out on skateboarding too much. Um, <laughs> you're now you're in your, uh, we'll take you back to Oswego. You're, you're in your junior year. Um, what are you studying? What are some classes that really influence you? And what are you thinking when you're gonna get out of school? I think junior year, I was a major in cinema and screen studies with a second major in broadcasting uh, at that point. And then I decided to drop the second major of broadcasting because I didn't want to take uh, broadcast law. That was, that the, was the whole the reason I was class. like, you know what? I don't need this major. This, that course is not going to be fun. It's not going to, uh, maybe it would have helped me. It's a lot but, of copyright uh, stuff pretty much yeah all copyright yeah i think i got a c maybe a c minus <laughs> yeah i dropped out before uh, before even taking it but then it did pick up an audio minor so audio production design minor so i thought that might fill the fill the holes a little bit cool and then um any classes you really loved anything production related so i did um i can't remember what years i did these classes but i did a class called film practicum where um the premise of the, of the class was you would make a new short film once every week or two. Um, I did another course called Locations. Um, and the premise of that course was it was all an on location film. So there were, I think the class was split up into three groups or something like that. And uh, each group had one film that they would collaborate on, one longer form, well, longer form, 20 minute. 10 to 20 minute film they would collaborate on. And I think this was in sophomore year, but I also did a, a course called Webisodes um, where I did, I Kenny. think that was, what's that? Bruce and Kenny. Not Bruce and Kenny. I did that on my own. Uh, oh, okay. Webisodes was one called App Holes. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, but it was a written narrative web series. And uh, that was really one of the first ones where I took the um, the load of the production work because I was shooting and doing all the editing for that um, to make up for the fact that I uh, didn't do much in the writing uh, <laughs> pre-production cases. Uh, so was the interest in sound, the sound minor just for film or was there any interest in like music or recording or anything like that? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, a lot of the people that I lived with, Mike Beecher's, uh, Kyle Wodzicki, um, they were musicians themselves and uh, I always liked the music scene. I always, I played guitar from uh, a teenage, my teenage years. Um, so I liked that aspect of it, but um, I also knew that it would be a nice overlap with film and looking at the strengths of me and Ryan Farmer, the person who often directed uh, the things I worked on, um, it made sense for him to direct and me to shoot on set 
then him to do the editing and me to do the sound and color uh, in post. So we kind of split the load between the two of us. Yeah, we'll talk more about um, Mr. Farmer in a little bit. But then when you're when you're getting ready to graduate, um, what I wanted to do was move to Los Angeles. And what I ended up doing was staying in Little Old Oswego for a couple of years. So what was it? What was on your mind at that point? What was the plan? I, well, I loved uh, I loved what I was working on in college and I wanted to be able to do it professionally. And I figured there were only a couple places throughout the US that you can do it professionally. Um, Los Angeles always spoke to me because that's always the big one, you know, that's Hollywood. Hollywood all that stuff, um, but also spoke to me because it was so different from where we grew up. Um, beautiful weather all the time, beaches, uh, and surprisingly cheaper than, say, New York City. <laughs> so uh, those are kind of some of the factors that led to it, but I'd kind of already decided that I wanted to do Los Angeles, um, I think when I was a junior, I probably made the decision that I uh, I wanted to graduate college, just make the move and see what happens. So was the plan to work on features? That was the, that was the plan, yep. The plan was to get out there uh, and start working on features in any capacity. So um, as an intern or a PA and then try to work my way up to camera department and go from there. Um, but that's what most people wanna do. <laughs> You're a, you're a small fish in a big pond kind of thing. A very small fish, um, especially one of the biggest learning moments I had when I got out there was working on a student film and seeing how much I didn't know and how many things I didn't learn in college. It was as if I was on set for the first time, like on a real, real set, and this was just a, a student film out there. Uh, so that was a little bit of a shock. Uh, the first one that we just found on Craigslist and they decided to let us come work for free. <laughs> no pay. Yeah. yeah, it really was. It was like, I'm showing up to an interview at a, at a coffee shop to work for free on somebody's student project. Waking up early. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have I was there actually, been... I did oh, days ahead. and nights for, uh, that was like how I met some of the best people that I worked with out there or like the people I became most friends with. I was doing overnights for one person short film and then daytimes for another. So I worked for like 40 hours straight or something stupid. Uh, just going from a night shoot to a day shoot to a night shoot to a day shoot. I do not recommend it. Yeah. Well, but then, you know, but then you got the connections out of it. So yeah. that's kind of like, that was your pay, I suppose, indirectly. Yeah. Um, are there other projects that you've worked on that, what, whether it's an industry or a specific project or a specific person that you're like, that sucked so bad, I'm never doing that again? <laughs> um, oof, that's a difficult one. I, I did an AC job or um, assistant camera for a reality show that was all in Spanish. Um, and that day we... Uh, we got up early, drove down to Comic-Con in San Diego. Then we worked for, I think, 22 hours. And then we drove back. Uh, and then that one 
so that was all in all a pretty rough experience. It was uh, shooting with people that shouldn't be talent, but just had money to pay for a crew to follow them to be a show. Shooting for way too long hours, just making garbage. No plan. No plan. We didn't even have tickets to go into Comic-Con. So we actually were just shooting in the parking lot because they had like people set up tents and stuff for, and just not stopping shooting for any reason. There's no reason to keep staying. There's nothing on the schedule. And then um, I remember I got let go from that one or not hired again rather because nobody would tell me if the cards they shot on the day before had been dumped. So the company only had two large cards for a two camera shoot. And then the rest of the, they were like 128 gigs and the rest of the cards were just 32 gigs. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to be the AC who comes in, formats the card. They lose all the interviews from the days before. So I used all the small, small cards and they were so mad because they had to dump like, I don't know, six cards per camera or something because we were shooting all day. And I, it would have been, it still would have been at least three cards that they would have had to dump per camera. So but, it added like an extra like 20 minutes to their, the editor's time. Yep. So they didn't, they, uh, instead they, of losing oh. two days worth of interviews. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, we, I mean, the, the industry attracts like the most eccentric people. And yeah. part of like what I try and discover with this podcast or what I am discovering is that creative people are sometimes just a little different. They, uh, they see the world differently and like, there's value to that, but then like, but yeah, we all have nightmare stories too. Absolutely. That's not even the worst story. It's just, that was the longest day that I've ever worked. I think it ended up being like <laughs> 26 hours or something like that. Um, which do you is want fine. to talk about the worst story? What's that? Do you want to talk about the worst one? I can't, I don't know what the worst one really is. I have bad individual experiences, but I can't say it was like, like the worst job ever or something mm. like that. Um, I try to be a relatively positive person. So just the fact that I'm able to do what I like for a living and that I was able to do it independently for so long. Um, that's already a big positive. Um, one of the not, I don't want to say the worst things. It's not the end of the world, but uh, I did have to 14 hours into a day. Um, it was about time where everybody was wrapping up and it was for a small concert that was at a venue in downtown Los Angeles. And uh, the task that I got before I could leave was to pick up the cigarette butts from the ground in the parking lot because they wanted to leave the parking lot nicer than uh, when we arrived. So I'm just walking around after 14 hours picking up cigarette butts off the ground. You're like, I have a college degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm doing this for, I mean, wasn't getting paid for the overtime. I think at the time, the rates for a PA were 150 for a day. Yeah. So you're talking about basically, well, if you think about overtime, it's less than $10 an hour to be doing that. But also... Well, there is, there is kind of this like attitude of like everyone working together and doing whatever you have to do, you know, yeah. anything for the shot or anything for, you know, whatever. Um, so, but you did say, you did say that you work on projects. Now you work on projects that you find interesting at the time. So what kind of stuff do you pass up on? 
Well, at the moment, uh, I just made a big life move. So I just uh, relocated my, um, my kind of home base to here in uh, Belgium uh, with the idea of being able to kind of take the next step in, the, in our relationship with my wife, uh, thinking about starting a family, thinking about um, owning property, you know, doing all the normal things. Uh, so at the moment, I'm taking anything I can get. <laughs> but uh, before COVID, I guess, is probably the best determiner of that because COVID really flipped everything on its head. But uh, the only things I would really turn down were um, I wouldn't do weddings. I did a lot of weddings uh, when I first got to LA and I said, don't want to do those anymore. Uh, and I guess the other things I would turn down were anything that was uninteresting in both the, uh, the rate as well as the content. So if it's boring content, but it's a good pay, happy to show up, you know, but if it's going to be bad pay and boring content, so, um, corporate stuff comes to mind, uh, like, hey, come shoot these interviews. Like, yeah, I'll happily do that. But if it's going to be a long day and low pay, maybe I'd rather not. For uh, for the listeners, uh, this is just a little piece of advice. A lot of uh, service businesses that are not necessarily the most exciting to shoot have the most money. And also anything you do is like wizardry to them. So they're usually pretty easy to work with and they pay yeah. a lot, but it is not exciting to talk about plumbing or electricity or air conditioning or whatever. So, um, okay. So you, so I want to just, before, we will get to uh, Brussels or Bruges, sorry. Um, but um, I want to say, I want to talk about you're in LA, you're living with Mr. Farmer who you mentioned, and uh, you're kind of just starting to build your network. How did that kind of, are there, individual stepping stones or was it like a slow gradual build to i mean it seemed like you were traveling the world pretty quick from after you moved out there so talk me through the process of building your network getting clients and then feeling like okay i'm gonna survive i'm gonna be okay and then maybe even beyond that like oh wow i can actually you know i don't have to go work in the hollywood system i can just do my own thing for the you know for the rest of my life or as long as i want to kind of thing how'd that process go yeah, it, uh, it really did happen quick from me getting there to having my first opportunity to travel for work. But uh, it was definitely stepping stones. Um, but ultimately, it's all about who you meet and uh, who you have good connections with. So the first thing that I did when I got out there, um, we stayed with our buddy, Matt Bourgeois, because uh, he was the only person in Los Angeles that we knew. So we crashed with from him Oswego. for a week. Yep. yep. Uh, now that, yep, Oswego grad, we crashed on his couch for a week when we were trying to find our own place. Um, he actually hooked me up with the LA Kings. So my very first job in Los Kate. Angeles. What's that? Kate. Yeah, and with Kate. Uh, this is uh, pre-Kate, actually. Kate wasn't at the Kings yet. Um, she would end up taking over for the guy that Matt introduced me for. And then I worked with her for a long time as well. But um and uh, she's been taken over by Trevor since. Mm. But uh, the first job was right after the Kings won the Stanley Cup. So it was essentially a photo shoot with all the 
uh, I guess sponsors or like people who buy the, the boots and all that stuff. So they were all invited to have their photo taken with a cuff. So I was just a PA helping out with whatever was needed, whether it's um, taking out the trash, restocking coolers, uh, helping move things for the photographer, whatever was needed, I was there to help out. Uh, and I was one of probably four PAs. Um, and I just worked as hard as I could and was trying to keep a good attitude the whole time. And uh, they ended up hiring me all the way through when I, well, all the way through COVID basically until mm -hmm. COVID. Um, so from that specific connection, I went from just no name PA that was recommended by somebody who edited for the Kings. Um, and I worked my way all the way up to uh, being one of the main camera, I guess, camera operators um, on a series they did when it was their 50th anniversary as a hockey club. So um, I shot a lot of those uh, Forever 50 campaigns. They hired me on a lot of different shoots to go um, shoot a charity event, essentially, that they were doing. Um, so that was kind of one that was stepping stones, gradually moving from just a production assistant up to helping uh, do grip or assistant camera up to being either a gaffer or a cameraman, depending on the, the project. But uh, around that same time was the one that I mentioned before, where it was uh, the days and nights short films. Uh, on the day short films, I met one of my closest friends there, uh, Randy, who uh, I'm actually going back for his wedding in a couple of days. Um, and he is, I met him as an assistant camera, but he uh, wanted to be a producer. So over time he grew and started producing more things or even if he was a cameraman or an assistant camera he would see if he could bring me on jobs um, and on the night shoots i met tony and brennan who ended up being my business partners uh and the first they're really the ones that uh that were doing the travel jobs that they decided to bring me along on cool and then uh what uh Talk about some of those projects, because I know you were in Cambodia with uh, um, a, a, a musician named Everywhere. And uh, yeah, what, what kind of stuff were you working on? Working on yeah. a pilot? This is, this is actually going back years still. Yeah, yeah. This is, um, so that was 2015, around May, I think. Um, yeah. I moved to Los Angeles in 2014, around September. Okay. Um, so it was like, I don't know, six, eight months or something like that uh, between stepping into LA for the first time and stepping onto a plane to Cambodia to shoot a, a TV pilot. So uh, that was with Tony and Brennan and they were at the point in their careers where they had been doing travel TV shows. Um, Brennan as a producer, a field producer um, or just a general producer. And then uh, Tony as a, an assistant camera and a camera operator, depending on the show. Uh, and they felt like they felt like they had done enough jobs where they said, hey, we're not really happy working for somebody else doing these projects. We think we could do these projects on our own. Um, we know what it takes. We've been doing this for another company. Why can't be, we be the ones selling the show to whatever network? Uh, so they said, let's just go make something. Uh, we'll do a Kickstarter 
uh, and then we'll put money in ourselves and we'll go make something. So I was working on very small projects with them pretty consistently after that short film because uh, we really hit it off and uh, they kept bringing me onto things, whether it be as a assistant camera or as a PA. Uh, and then I got involved talking to them about this project and ended up uh, doing a little bit of pre-production with them and helping them out. And they said, uh, hey, we can't pay you anything, but do you wanna take a all expenses paid trip to Cambodia for a month and shoot this thing with us? And I said, I really want to, but I'm super poor and I need to pay rent. And they said, okay, we'll pay your rent. We can, we'll, we'll pay, like, what's your rent? I think it was 700 bucks at the time for my half a rent. And it was, oh yeah, we'll, we'll pay your rent. And as long as you come out and do this project with us. So uh, that was kind of how that worked. And then, yeah, that was my first time out of the country aside from Canada, which, you know, is pretty close to where we grew up. So that's not like a big deal. <laughs> And uh, it was on the road for a month in Southeast Asia, uh, shooting a pilot. And uh, did they ever end up selling that pilot? Not really. So uh, after we went our different ways, they uh, managed to, uh, they basically have a comedian that they started working with and he launched his own app that's like a uh, monthly subscription app where people get short form content um, from him and from other friends of his um, who do comedy, music, all sorts of things. Um, I Last I heard is they edited what we shot as a pilot down into kind of a web series and are releasing it on that app. Very cool. Yeah, yeah so it, six years later. It's... Yeah. So it, whether it's, uh, you know, commercial stuff for a local business or a pilot for a show, that's actually, I think, one of the things that I would like to do in the next couple of years is develop a pilot because you need 22 minutes of material and it can, I mean, a lot of the formulas for TV exist already. I think what you guys were trying to do was probably a little different than what people have been doing in the past. You know, it's not like some bake off or <laughs> barbecue off or you know that formula like stuff exists and you can just take another medium and plug it in and create a pilot like and it, i don't know how you sell or pitch yet because but i'd love to i'm going to talk to somebody that has actually had a something picked up by a network at some point so um, but any insight into that whole process uh the insight that i have is everybody is super interested and wants to make a deal so they can get their uh, in on it, but nobody seems to be able to sell anything. So that's kind of how, uh, that's how our experience was with it is uh, we came back with uh, an insane amount of footage. We shot basically every day for a month. Um, and we, it took a long time to get that amount of footage whittled down into a uh, sizzle. Did you have a narrative or was it just kind of like, we're going to see what we can get? It was a little bit of both. They did some, um, some work beforehand, uh, trying to find local fixers to see what was around. And they had the plan that they wanted to, the general structure of the show, which is a little bit on the formulaic side. It's uh, the, the travel show format. Um, but the twist that we had on it was uh, every episode, he, our host would travel to a new country 
meet and collaborate with local artists and then put on a show at the end of their trip, um, inviting these local artists to be the opening acts and then performing with some local artists during, for their performance, um, which is kind of cool. Uh, our host actually learned enough Khmer, which is the, the language in Cambodia, to sing like a, um, I don't know, I don't even know what kind of, like a classic Khmer song as one wow. of the one of the things in his performance. So that was pretty cool. But um, yeah, in terms of actually selling a pilot, it's, uh, I can't tell you how many times we thought we had it in the bag and had really, really promising things and nothing ever came from it in terms of network, uh, I don't want to say net, network interest per se, but it just the timing never aligned. The just the stars really have to align for it to sell, mm. unless it's truly something completely unheard of or new or unique, and you have the right people to show it to. Um, let's see. So, or if it's something kind of generic, but it's just new. <laughs> If yeah. you take the formula, because then that's also safe for the investor. Oh, this is a formula we've seen at work, uh, whatever it may be, cooking What's, show. Do you think any of that is uh, has to do with just the way people are in LA? Uh, as far as like you thinking you have it and then it just the deal always falling through? It's possible. I think, um, I think there's, LA is so diverse because it's such a massive city. Um, so it's hard to say like the people in LA, but I, there can be a mentality of thinking that you're bigger than you are and thinking that you have more connections than you are and then making promises based on what you think you have. So if you know somebody, if you're a producer and you're trying to acquire content and get a, a piece of the pie uh, and you come across somebody who has good content um, such as the, this show that we created and you know a couple people that work at Netflix, then you're going to, of course, flex that thing. Say, hey, I know some people at Netflix. I really like your show. I'd love to be, uh, I'd love to have exclusive rights to pitch it. Um, so I think you get that a lot where who knows if this guy knows the janitor at Netflix or if he knows the CEO, you know, but um I think what, it, what ultimately it comes down to is people in that position that are like the middleman, they want a piece of the pie. And of course, if they sell it, then great, they make their money. But also, if they just collect as many, get their name on as many properties as possible, only one has to hit. So he can, that person can tell 50 other people who showed him a sizzle hey, I really like your sizzle. I got this guy at Netflix, you know? So it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit tricky of who to believe. And um, you have to really be careful about not giving away your content without any firm uh, distribution. Uh, that's really, really solid industry advice. Um, so, and then it really seems like people once they have a have 
it almost sounds like the best way to do it is to make that connection yourself and however yeah. that's done <laughs> stalking somebody I, I don't know but like you said just knowing i don't know either knowing somebody that knows somebody or just i don't know reaching out to people directly and i think there is something to be said about that and that the internet makes it so you can see who the who the people are, the the gatekeepers or whatever you want to call them, uh, and and uh, and then cutting out basically cutting out the middleman that uh, maybe is just trying to look out for themselves and then, you know, go that way. Go go that way. But uh, you know, I haven't done it, so I'm not going to give advice myself. But um, talk me through. Would you say that the uh, that project was like a favorite or some like? Is there a project that you're really proud of or is a favorite of yours? That was probably my favorite experience, but I wish that I wish that I had sharpened my tools more before I left, before I went there. I wish that uh, that project happened five years later, let's say. Um, not only did technology take a uh, camera technology take a massive leap, um, but just the way that my and my business partners careers evolved uh we all really refined our skills between when we made that and let's see where we were right before COVID or where we are now or however you want to look at it um so there are back then what's that did you shoot in 4k back then no we were shooting on a c100 and uh-huh. my little black magic pocket camera Is that, so that's a uh, the c100 mark one mark one yeah yeah so that's on the hd and only up to 30 frames so no slow-mo oh wow and same with the little pocket camera six years that's uh, crazy no uh no ir filter in the pocket camera so when you put heavy nd on it you get like this uh maroon color like wash over the whole image but it's not just an even thing that you can dial out with Like it's, a, I guess, more magenta, not maroon. Um, but it's not something you can easily dial out in color correction. So then it becomes a real pain. And then the battery lasts for about 15 minutes. So you have to have a janky battery salute. Oh, the equipment side of it was a nightmare. No gimbals. Gimbals weren't really a thing yet. Or yeah. not widely accessible. Um, you must have had a lot of sound equipment too to be able to capture the, the end performance as well. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sound equipment was rough. Uh, it was, we had some electrosonics that we borrowed from a sound friend of theirs. So we did have like a dual receiver on the C100 um, and two uh, wireless packs. But other than that, we just had some, um, I think a Zoom recorder and a Tascam recorder. Oh, so um, no, literally just two inputs. Like you'd put like a condenser, like two condenser mics, and then those would go to your C100 and those well, are your lines. For the concert, we had um, it was on an actual stage, so it went to a board, and then we just took the stereo out of the board. Okay, okay, yeah. that's what I like. But, like at a wedding, basically. Like at a wedding, yeah. but the, whatever the mix is, uh, <laughs> house is the mix that you get. So. Yeah, yeah. You better hope your 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 on site mixer is doing a good job, not like peaking yeah. something like crazy. Hmm. Yep. But uh, and also that was just that was literally just three of, uh, I guess, four of us, one person doing a DIT, but we didn't have a sound guy. Yeah. There was two people shooting and then the our producer that was doing everything else, including sound. So uh, it's amazing we got any sound out of that project. Huh. 
Very cool. Yeah, that so was definitely one of the favorites. Um, another favorite was I used to have what I always call the best uh, gig ever, not because it was the highest paid or anything like that, but it was also pretty early on in my career in Los Angeles. Um, we were hired by a travel package company. So the idea is you sign up, you pay a monthly fee and they have travel packages, group travel packages that you go on. So you say, I want to go visit Bruges. Let me click the Bruges thing. They set up the hotel, the, all the, um, all the events to do there, all the activities, uh, all that's covered. And you just have to get, get yourself there. You have to cover your own flight. Um, so they hired us to make kind of promotional material as well as more like testimonial stuff for these uh, conferences that they would put on. But that one involved the three of us flying all over to these vacation places, staying in like the suite of the hotel because we'd have to shoot it uh, and just shooting people having fun on vacation. And I, I, you can't really beat that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, do you think, uh, do you think it takes a certain kind of person to just stay a contractor or do you need certain skills? It absolutely takes a certain kind of person. I think it takes the kind of person that, um, isn't afraid when they don't have a job lined up. Um, so many people can't do that. They can't, uh, they can't imagine, uh, like the position I'm in right now, I have uh, the Bahamas is a maybe. It's already been pushed once. I think it'll happen. Hopefully it happens when they say, but who knows? And other than that, I'm just doing outreach and uh, looking for jobs here and meeting people here and uh, build, trying to build my network. But I don't have anything firm lined up other than that shoot, which is, you know, and you never know if it's uh, going to get pushed again or what's going to happen with it. So I think you need somebody who has like the kind of uh, attitude to deal with that and not to stress too much about that. And you also need to be the type of person that doesn't mind constantly job hunting. So that's job hunting isn't fun no matter who you are, but that's all you're doing in this industry. If you're not on set, then you're either reaching out to people or messaging production companies or trying to do make your own content to make some passive income um, or even fulfill your own creative endeavors. Uh, so I think it really does take a certain kind of person to, to deal with all the uh, negatives that come with freelancing because it sounds like this dream thing. You do what you want. You don't have your boss. You don't have a boss. You're your own boss. You make decent money. You get paid as a professional. Um, but then to actually do it and realize that you're at the mercy of jobs sometimes. Um, sometimes you're not gonna be doing the types of jobs that you want. Uh, you're constantly looking for the next job. There's a lot of unseen negatives, um, but I don't know. I think you definitely, it definitely has to be the right type of person. Would you go back? Would you, would you do a regular, you know, working job? No, I think, um, Right now, I wouldn't be opposed to something a little bit more uh, consistent. Consistent. That's exactly the word for it. Uh, but that's only because it's been such a big life change with the move um, and just wanted to get 
kind of plant my feet a little bit. But if I still had the, if I had the same kind of contacts that I had in Los Angeles here and was ready to go, I wouldn't think twice about uh, wanting to do a, a normal like nine to five kind of job. So what led up to the decision? I know, I know um, your wife is there obviously, but um, professionally, what led up to the decision to relocate your home base to Bruges? Um, mostly, mostly in my personal life, not so much professionally. Um, things, well, as it happened with everybody, when COVID hit, uh, I had a bunch of jobs lined up that all just slowly started going away. I even had one, I had somebody call me um, at nine in the morning say, asking if I could shoot something at noon. That was like a press release from uh, the CEO of their company about COVID and what they're going to be doing. And they canceled on me by 10. So I had like just cancellations left and right. Um, and then I got a bit lucky and a director that I had worked with consistently over the years on a lot of, um, actually a lot of TV or movie and series like um, promotional material. Um, he gave me a call and said, hey, I have uh, this Johnson & Johnson uh, client that wants to do a live show about COVID. Um, mm. It's going to be six weeks. Can you fly out um, this week and come do six weeks in New Jersey? Uh, so everything at that point had canceled on me. And I said, yeah, why not? I'll come do six weeks, get a, make a little bit of money and then see if this whole thing blows over. Um, and uh, it didn't blow over. So then I ended up being there for seven months, um, just oh, yeah. working on a weekly contract in New Jersey, living at the director's house, working out of his basement, doing uh, remote production, basically uh, recording calls like this for various, uh, various companies. But um, during that time, I kind of took a look at where I was at in my career the things, the goals that I had that I wanted to accomplish, um, the where I was at in my personal life, um, how close I was to wanting to settle down and start a family, um, buy a house, that kind of things, and seeing the absolutely insane prices of uh, the LA housing market. Uh, that combined with what it actually looks like to for my wife to make the move to Los Angeles, which we had already been at that point over a year into our uh, application for her to come move. And it was just on hold because of COVID. Uh, well, it took about a year and then was on hold because of COVID. So kind of thinking about the direction that I wanted for my life, um, the direction I wanted for family stuff, the direction for work, which had become a bit more uh, stale, I guess. I was, I was starting to get sick of the things I was doing and didn't really have the connections for doing more of the projects I liked doing. Um, and it was kind of a whole combination of things that said, okay, well, what if we change things up? What if I, what if I can do something to uh, make the potential of family and settling down easier? How difficult is that going to be in terms of career? How difficult is that going to be in terms of paperwork to actually do it? 
Uh, and that's when I kind of really started thinking maybe this is possible. What's the, uh, what's, is there a scene in, in Bruges? Everyone speaks French and Flemish, right? Uh, yeah, Flemish is just a kind of dialect, dialect of Dutch. Um, gotcha. Uh, so the country is split into two. The northern half speaks uh, Dutch and the southern half speaks French. And, um, but uh, mostly everyone speaks enough English that you can get by, no problem. Yep, exactly. Um, it's been interesting on the sets that I have been on because I've been on a couple mainly French speaking sets and one mainly Dutch speaking set. Uh, set. And uh, yeah, it's just, everybody seems, especially the, the people who are native Dutch speakers all speak good enough French and the native French speakers, uh, I don't think they really try to speak any Dutch. So um, it's this weird thing where the DP will be saying something in Dutch to this person, then they'll turn to this person and start speaking in French. And then they'll look at me and start speaking in French. And I was like, oh, sorry, English. And this, oh yeah, yeah. and they switched to English. Uh, it's, it's a whole, it's a very interesting thing how the different languages all play which I'm still uh, figuring out, but. And it's all PAL in 25 frames, right? 25 or 24, yeah. Yeah, and different, and different power supplies and everything over there too. Yep, 220 volts. So um, so do they, do they view you as like the big Hollywood filmmaker? Because you're coming from LA? I think I try to stay pretty humble. Uh, I have a pretty decent resume in terms of the companies I've worked with. Uh, and I'm happy to bring that up in an email as I'm reaching out to people, but I'm not gonna, it doesn't matter on set. And some of the sets I've worked out uh, uh, on here that I've worked on are bigger, the same size or just as big uh, or even bigger than sets that I was working on in the States. Uh, all the equipment's the same, that kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm happily, happy to stay humble about it, but I think that when people hear it for the first time and haven't really met me, just hear of me, they definitely get that impression. Uh, the first job that I did out here, uh, they told me at the end of the day how surprised they were, how like laid back I was and uh, easy to work with and not uh, well, basically humble that I was. And they said, yeah, that's a really good trait. We we were kind of expecting something different just because Some of diva. where you've been working. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, that was a very small set. It was only maybe a three or four person crew. So I think they were almost like a little embarrassed that it was such a small crew. It's like, no, I do this stuff, the same stuff in LA. I do small crew stuff there as well. Um, so it's, I have a little bit of an advantage there as long as they give me a shot. Um, and don't just assume that, oh, he's from LA, he's going to have his nose in the air. And they call it a dick and neck here, which is a thick neck. And that's like uh, somebody who's stuck up. <laughs> oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's, it's almost worked in your favor, but also could work against you and that people have like this preconceived vision of what you're going to be like. Yeah, that's I'm so trying to make it work in my favor. But, um, and it's been good so far, but I think I can see it as if they haven't met me or whatever the case is, I can see, uh, I can see it working against me as well. <laughs> Once you get to know them a little better just be like, uh, so we don't drink, uh, Fiji water here. What is this? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so so do you see yourself staying uh staying there for i mean it's, it sounds like you 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 plan on making that like kind of your your home base yeah that's the plan is to that this will be my home base and hopefully i'll still be able to travel back to the states for work um and cool. also for pleasure of course but um mostly um for work i've kind of let everybody that i worked with back in the states know that if a, an opportunity came up that they wanted to work together and it was long enough that it made sense if it's a week-long job and it makes sense for me to pay my own flight that'll happily come back and work together and i'd love to do that um but bruges i think will ultimately be my home base because once i once you settle a little bit more in the future buying a house, having children. Uh, it just makes more sense here with the healthcare, with the family support system. Um, it just, in terms of life makes more sense here. Work doesn't quite make more sense yet, but uh, life in general makes more sense. And mom and dad are used to you being away from home anyway. Yeah, it's a longer time difference now. Instead of three hours, I think it's six hours. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I need to get better at uh, calling. Is your brother working in the industry? Does he do anything oh, with? He's a programmer. Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so let's see. And uh, would you uh, change? Would you have? Oh, any internship? Any college internship or anything like that? Okay. Do you think that college is necessary for to do what you do? I think college is, was necessary for me, but is not necessary for everybody. Um, I, Most common answer right there. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Well, not unique. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know exactly what I wanted to. I, uh, I think I needed to more become myself through living alone and being away from home and... Uh, meeting new people and learning new perspectives and everything. I think I had a lot of personal growth from that. Um, the teaching is useful in different aspects. The equipment's always gonna be changing. Small colleges aren't gonna have the equipment that you want, but there's still a lot of knowledge that you can get just from uh, somebody who's worked in the industry or been around that for years. Um, so I also, I think you kind of get out of it what you put into it. Mm. But for me, it was, I, there's no way I would have been able to, if I was 18, just go to Los Angeles and start working. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have happened or I would have made such big mistakes that, uh, that I'd be back on my parents' couch. It sounds like just the humility, um, you know, kind of bringing it all the way back to the beginning to kind of the, the humility might come from upstate New York as well. Um, because I, I get, I only say that I'm not, I'm not knocking LA people or anything like that. It's just that like, I get um, comments like that where people say you're from New York, but you're so nice. Like there are nice people in New York and also I'm from upstate New York. So it's like a little different than come from New York city. So. Um, yeah, of course. Well, yeah. I will say some of the stranger people that I met in LA were from LA. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely has like, and there's, and there's like, again, it, I mean, there's beauty to that. We need people that view the world differently and, you know, and it keeps up. What would life be if we didn't have interactions with like out there people, you know, um, 
if we all thought the same diversity of thought is a beautiful thing um they invented a phone that allows you to make one phone call to the past and you and you you're going to call your 17 year old self but you have to leave a 60 second voicemail what advice would you give buy bitcoin and then sell <laughs> it uh, in 2019 <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right. right? That was about the time when uh, Bitcoin was whatever five for a dollar. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I remember it was seventy bucks a coin, and I was like, that was up to like sixty thousand or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a uh, you know Ethereum. Yeah, other, of course. Uh, I got introduced to that. I don't know how many years back, but actually pretty early on when I was in LA, and it was like maybe thirty bucks a coin. And I remember saying, I was like, oh man, if it were cheaper, like I'd probably get in, but I think it's too late. It's already kind of peaked 30 bucks. And uh, obviously that's not as volatile as Bitcoin's been, but just recently, I think it was like 3,300 bucks. Yeah. 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 That's crazy. But yeah, I, I, I keep up on all those, but I don't, uh, I don't, uh, necessarily uh so that's funny because i usually go for like general life advice you're like no specifically on this day <laughs> sell your bitcoin yeah. uh, that's no that would just make everything a lot easier you know oh for sure yeah you'd be you'd be in in bruges uh you know 10 you know a year and a half early you would have been on an island where there was no covid so yeah i mean i'm, I'm pretty happy with the the way that my life has gone thus far so if you could just add a couple million to my bank account, I'd be uh, real, real happy. <laughs> Great advice. So um, now is a chance. Can people follow you anywhere? Can they learn more about what you do or your business? Um, is there anything you want to plug? Any projects that you're working on that people should go check out? Anything like that? There's nothing really that I'm working on at the moment, um, but they can follow me at Kyle Kroll DP. Uh, on Instagram. That's kind of the only social media that I really uh, stay up to date on. Uh, and if you want to learn more about me, send me an email or something at uh, kylecurldp at gmail.com. Um, and I'll tr- try to remember to link that below. Yeah. Either way. I don't want to get a flood of emails, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And if you, uh, so let's see. So yeah. And it, it's one of those things, if you're listening and you have questions for Kyle, Kyle and I go way back and I'd love to, you know, eventually have you back on the show if I've got some listener questions in so you can uh, send them to Kyle or you can email me at wecreatetruth.com. Kyle, I'm going to go ahead and close out the episode and then um, you and I can talk a little bit more. So in upcoming episodes of The Creative Truth, I'm going to be talking to more artists, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals to help discover their path to uh, to success. If you enjoyed this episode or you have uh, host feedback, guest feedback, guest suggestions, you can email me at wecreatetruth at gmail.com. If you're listening on iTunes, please leave me a good review. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to please like, share, and subscribe, ring the bell, do whatever the YouTube people say. Uh, And... uh, You can learn more and get some swag at creative-truth.com. And we will talk to you in the next episode. I appreciate everyone who's listening. And it's the first one in the new studio. We have just hit over a thousand downloads. We don't know what's going to come in the future, but I could not do it without your support. Thanks. And I'll see you soon.